Blog Talk Radio. Working with EMDR with trauma, which has been very exciting. 
I think that the parents um, who have been trying to make their kids perfect, who have been trying to make everything look right, who are, are uh, motivating, motivated so much by um, this uncomfortable experience about others' judgment or assessment of what's going on in their parenting, and, and lots of people, of course, are vulnerable to that, um, can really get pulled into this idea that I think is is a part of our generation much more than previous generations that we're really supposed to be there to make our kids happy and to have our kids be comfortable at all times and entertained. And when the kids are contained and behaving well, then that means we're good parents. And if they're not, then that must mean that we're not. And I think that adds this whole other layer to uh, to what goes on when you're dealing with special needs. And um, I, I know you've covered a great deal about meltdowns and soothing skills and those kinds of things, which I, I, I know you've done quite a lot about that. But what's really interesting is how those things dovetail with PTSD and with trauma. Because what happens when people get... Um, an experience that overwhelms their capacity to cope and overwhelms their capacity to soothe themselves. The fight-or-flight system, which I know you and your listeners, I'm sure, know a great deal about already, PTSD is when the fight-or-flight system gets disconnected from the present. So you are still in the trauma and can't tell when you're safe. And that's right. And PTSD. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. No, I was just saying, you know, and that I think is is what's so confusing because I think people think of post traumatic stress disorder um, only um, in cases of you know rape, um, abuse, crimes, um, you know, re- really serious events. And you know, yes, I mean, obviously, you know, there is post traumatic stress after that. But you know, you brought up two great points with special needs families. Um, you know, there is that stigma. And, um, you know, raising a special needs child, you know, you have to get thick skin. Um, You have to Mm -hmm. prioritize your life. And, you know, also just the stress of educating these kids. Um, You know, I've said before on the show that, you know, there have been studies that parents with special needs children have cortisol levels as high as um, war veterans. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so, so, you know, it it really does pertain to us and to our children. So... um, you know, I wanted to go back to the, what you were saying before about um, always trying to make the kids happy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that that really pertains, I know for myself, I think more for the siblings. I think that sometimes we feel so badly and so guilty um, for for the siblings having to deal with a lot of the issues that we do do that. Um, you know, how, do, how does that um, work against us? Well, I think that... Um I, first of all, I want to say I think it's a really normal, normal feeling. You you know you want to be able to give to all of your children, and you want to be able to enjoy your children. And it's very, very difficult if you are in a situation where there is a child who requires so much, and so much of what is required is, um, you know, in the context of some of these very high cortisol kinds of situations. I think it's really normal and understandable to feel bad that you're not um, giving the attention to some of the the other children or expecting them to, oh, they'll be okay or they need to understand that this is what 
um, the sibling needs. But I think another double whammy for a lot of parents is that they feel guilty about wanting to enjoy that other kind of time or worry about favoring um, uh, the kids who are easier. And uh, I think that 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 is something that's very hard for parents to talk about or acknowledge. And so I kind of want to just put that out there also, that that is, you know, it's a setup really where uh, no matter what you do and no matter what choice you're making, there is a way of construing it for yourself where you feel bad about something that you're doing or not doing. And um, that's why I think um, that we're talking today about trauma and about processing things in a, in a way where you can adaptively kind of cope with the bad things and difficult things that have happened, um, which may be big T traumas, as we call them, like rape and combat stuff. And right. sometimes we call the other kinds of traumas little t traumas, and they're, it's not meant to be uh, a minimization of those, but they don't fall into the the usual category that people think, oh, yes, that's a trauma. But when these other things happen, particularly if they happen over and over again, um, right. they do cause the, the same kinds of symptoms that you commented on. Well, what differentiates um, post-traumatic syndrome disorder from severe or chronic stress? I mean, you know, how much of it is physical? You spoke before about, um, you know, when you get stuck in the flight and fight. Um Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when your adrenaline is pumping, your cortisol is pumping. And I know that for a lot of people, you know, for my child, um, basically that is what she had. Um, so how much of it is physical? And then how much of it do you think becomes just emotional, um, you know, for fear of going back into that state? Because anybody that's had that panic and anxiety, that physical feeling, um, you know, I know a lot of these kids, they're just in a panic that they're going to feel it again. Mm-hmm. And and we, we call that anticipatory anxiety, and that yeah, that does happen. The panic of what if it happens, or what if it happens, and I'm in a situation where I can't get comfortable or safe, or I'm trapped, or I make a scene, or you know, and this is a, lo- a lot of people who have panic attacks have this kind of thing too. The the fight or flight and the cortisol and all of that that you spoke about is something that we are all hardwired to do. This is the most ancient part of our brain, and it's really adaptive for certain things. And it was most constructive, I think, in ancient times, like when, uh, you know, a big, you know, tiger or something jumped out at you and you needed to fight or run and not think carefully about what to do next but just react. That kind of wiring is really, really useful. But we're we're living right now in a really exciting time because we're learning so much from the functional MRI machines and from the the ways that we can now study the brain while it's working, which is really only, I think, in the last 20 years or so. And what we're learning is that um, when we go into fight or flight, the blood flow and the activity in the part of the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex that does things like um, looking at consequences and weighing different options and selecting the best one and being able to stop and think and respond, that part goes completely offline when we go into fight or flight. And that's not just special needs kids. That's all of us. All of us have had moments when, you know, we may be normally very um, 
you know, mature or smart or capable, and we react in a way and say, what did I just do? And that's an example that, that can really happen to anybody. And the neuropsychiatrist who has written quite a lot about this, Dan Siegel, wrote a fabulous parenting book called Parenting from the Inside Out, and he used a lot of his mistakes as examples. He called it going on the low road instead of on the high road. And when he got to that reactive place, and I think it's been comforting for parents to kind of see that, you know, even if you know a lot about this stuff, that human beings are not perfect, and, you know, it, it makes things very accessible. But right. what we're learning about um, PTSD, what PTSD does that differentiates it from this chronic stress, fight or flight, is this disconnecting it from the present. You may be in chronic stress and you know why you're in chronic stress and, and these things are um, getting activated and the dread of it are getting activated and the wear and tear on your system from the cortisol and the adrenaline causes physical and emotional symptoms to happen. But when people go into PTSD, they they um, their bodies forget how to sort of stand down and go, okay, you know what? That stuff is not happening right now. I can chill out. I'm on vacation or I'm, uh, you know, it's a calm time or it's bedtime and everybody seems to be asleep and I can relax. Uh, and you catapult yourself into either the what ifs or you feel a re-experiencing or you have intrusive kinds of uh, sensory experiences where you either feel like the really bad thing is happening to you again, um, or it keeps playing like a movie in front of your eyes and you have trouble concentrating, or you go right, the other like way. Right, like a loop. Numb right. out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so those does, does there need to be an event, a specific event, to have post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, that has been uh, a source of controversy and discussion. It's a lot easier when there has been an event. But um, everyone's hell is their own. Uh, I believe that uh, Bessel van der Kolk said that most recently, that you can't really, you know, it's interesting. People want to judge what what's a real trauma or what's a real Bad thing, and it's it's funny if you get a group together of uh, of trauma survivors who've all had like big T trauma, and you put them in a support group, they all sit around and go, "Oh, yours was much worse than mine," uh, and nobody feels like they really like theirs was really that bad. But the person across the room thinks theirs was worse. Um, people have uh, very little ability to gauge or judge what can cause another person to go into a, a traumatic reaction. And uh, this can be, you know, it, for different people, they can have different things. But we're looking more, I think, at what the brain then does with it and how people are um, able to function afterward. Are they able to take care of themselves and relax? Are they able to shift gears? Are they right. hypervigilant? Are they always on guard, watching? They don't want to be surprised. Those are some of the PTSD-like kinds of things. Yeah, because I think, you know, maybe some, some people are just more, you know, differently wired, um, you know, where, you know, for one, it, it may take a big T, you know, a major, um, you know, horrible event, and for others, it just could mm -hmm. be, you know, their lifestyle. Um, 
you know, I, I've often wondered if, um, you know, the, the, some of these children, um, I know that Dr. Richard Hall and many others have done a lot of work on this, um, of, you know, prenatally um, affecting a child, that a child pretty mm-hmm. much is born wired for um, post-traumatic stress disorder from, a, a, the, from the mother having such high cortisol levels. That can certainly affect it. And and also nature in terms of, of our character. There have been studies in, uh, you know, perinatal studies in the, in the nursery, in the hospital, and startle response varies dramatically. You can make a big noise and some kids will sleep through it and others will, you know, jump uh, as newborns. Right. I mean, I know that was the case of my child. Um, you know, and but, but there are, you know, like we're talking about post-traumatic stress. And, you know, also, you know, we're, we're talking about special needs parenting. And I think to some degree, um, you know, when you have a child with, you know, significant needs, really I feel like we are in a post-traumatic stress disorder type of a, a life. Um, and you talk about, mm-hmm. um, you know, your work with EMDR, and um, you talk about the importance of regulation and soothing. So um, why don't you give us some tips on that? And then, you know, I'd like to go into EMDR and what it is, because I think a lot of people have heard it, but I don't think people really know what it is and how effective it could be. I, I agree. I think a lot of a, a lot of people have heard of it, or I've heard of it early on before all of the international research had been done on it as well. So, um, the the soothing types of things I know that that you know a lot about. Um, you know, different ways of helping uh, adults and kids calm down, and you can do visualizations, and you can do breathing, and you can do certain kinds of containing types of, of exercises, we actually start, one of the things we start with EMDR is gauging whether people can shift gears when they are calmer to be able to think in a positive or constructive way, whether there is any, uh, whether there are any pathways in there that are able to do that. Because if someone is not able to do that at all, for example, if they chronically, constantly um, hate themselves uh, without any little piece of something constructive. It is difficult to do EMDR, but fortunately most people have even a a little footpath of something constructive. And and what what we've been finding with with EMDR is that the, the way of thinking about this is that um, first of all, Francine Shapiro, who created EMDR, sort of discovered kind of by accident that um, uh, rapid eye movement, bilateral stimulation to the, the periphery of the body um, could cause upsetting things to become less so. And it's kind of interesting when we think about the wiring of the fight-or-flight system because all of the things that amp up the fight-or-flight system are on the midline, your throat, your heart, you know, the pounding chest, the feeling in the pit of your stomach. And the peripheral sides are where the parasympathetic system is that calms that down. And um, we do rapid eye movement in our sleep. And there have been studies that if you let people sleep, but you deprive them only of the rapid eye movement phase of sleep, they start getting crazy. They, they, people, it's as if there's a, there's a part of that that um, helps facilitate a kind of a digesting 
emotional content. And uh, I think that's kind of an interesting sidebar to this. But Ian, do you right. know and you that can, prob- does that have anything to do with why so many kids um, that do have mood disorders when they when they are starting to, um, you know, which is one of the first signs of, signs of slipping into it, um, when they start losing mm-hmm. sleep? Well, is that part of the, the reason? It, I, I don't know that that is a causal thing. When, when kids have sleep disturbance, um, very often it's... Um, it's in part because of the mood disorder. When they are not distracted and when they're just with themselves, the the worry or the the negative feelings that they have, I think they're um, they get stronger and they can also have nightmares and things. And then, of course, it does become a vicious cycle where then that creates sleep deprivation and then they get um, Manic. it's harder for them to use the skills they have. And then that you know, but I don't think it's about the deprivation initially because if you don't if you don't selectively remove the REM sleep, your body will make sure that you get a certain amount of REM, no matter how many other phases you get, from from what I understand. But so what EMDR is EMDR? Is what, explain to us really what it is, um, because I think people really don't know what it is and how it's performed, how it's done. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And Dr. Shapiro now says that if she had known what she knows now, she would simply call it reprocessing therapy. But that's that's what she called it then. So we have EMDR. It's it's an integrative psychotherapy um, that has been researched extensively and it's been proven effective for the treatment of trauma. Um, it's made up of a set of standardized protocols uh, that incorporate elements from many different treatment approaches. And about 2 million people, kids and adults, have been helped so far by it. Um, the way that it works, it uses bilateral stimulation, usually right and left eye movement, but sometimes also uh, alternating tapping motions or sound, um, which repeatedly activate opposite sides of the brain. And what it seems to do is release emotional experiences that have gotten trapped uh, in the nervous system. And basically wow. the idea of it is is that what it, it seems to move information that is traumatic um, so that your own brain can take over and reprocess it constructively. It's kind of like if you, if you think about a, a, a memory that happened a long time ago that is not a trauma memory, it feels mm-hmm. far away. It feels... It, it, you know, it's faded a bit. But if you think of a really traumatic memory and you touch on it, it has a freshness about it and an immediacy. People can start crying immediately. I mean, it, it there's something undigested about that. And it seems that um, these traumatic memories can get stuck with all of the original feelings and sensations and images and things from, from the original event. And it doesn't get it's like it doesn't get digested and what this seems to do is it seems to move the information to a part of the brain where the brain goes oh yeah i know how to do this and it turns it into uh, a regular memory in a sense and and this um the negative belief that often gets stored in there too about the self that you know the bad thing means that 
incompetent or I'll, uh, um, you know, I can't do anything right or I'll never be safe or, or you know, whatever the, the negative belief about the self, as the information moves and is reprocessed in a very gentle way that is not, um, you know, nowhere near as, as stressful for the person going through the treatment than uh, some of the other types of trauma therapy people have done, like exposure therapy and, mm-hmm. you know, other ways. This one, um, it kind of the brain starts to, to supply some different ways of thinking about what has happened, and it sort of changes it from... Um, feeling like you're still in it to, wow, that was really tough and I'm glad it's over and um and there are these and I'm really strong. <laughs> I'm really um positive beliefs start coming up. And is this it's all done really through talk quick. therapy or is it computerized? How is this done? It's not really done through talk therapy. It EMDR can work with all kinds of therapy. It it works well um with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, with uh, um, psychodynamic therapy, with family therapy. There there are many different approaches that can use this as a a tool. But EMDR is, a lot of people like it because you don't really have to talk about what's going on. Um, I know that this is sounding kind of too good to be true in some ways, and I think I should just tell you that when I first saw Dr. Shapiro talk about EMDR. I was a graduate student, and it was many years ago, and, and EMDR was very new. And I thought, this is way too good to be true. How could you possibly, in a session or two or three, um, make people's upset go away, which is basically what she was doing. Right. And um, it, it actually it actually worked. It's, it's extraordinary. And I've heard that from people what? that have used it on their children, children that have been traumatized mm-hmm. through severe um, medical issues, um, surgeries, mm-hmm. accidents. Um, and I'm telling you, they have told me it is the most incredible thing. Um, what was interesting mm-hmm. um, was that one person had told me that um, their child was too young to remember the trauma um, and mm-hmm. that it, it took a little bit longer um, for them, um, because they couldn't identify uh, what the cause was. So, is it important for the person to be able to identify the reason for their trauma or their their post traumatic stress? Well, it's it's not necessarily a verbal therapy, and there are some different ways that we've um, adapted uh, that it's it's been adapted for children. Um, but because there's sort of a dual awareness of the what happened then and what's happening now that that can be hard for children, which very often um, the children can um, work with it, having a parent tell the story about what happened to them and have them be in the room with the parent and either drawing or having the EMGR therapist do alternate tapping while the child is listening to the parent talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are ways that that older children, you know, if they're not very very young, can it's almost like playing a game with a therapist where they think about the thing, you know, when they were in the hospital and how scared they were or what that what was done, and they can follow um, 
Sometimes they use puppets or, or things. This is actually, this can be done manually with fingers where you're positioned in a certain way and an adult would um, would basically cue up in their mind a, a particular event that they were targeting that, that we've measured about how, what the degree of upset is about it and also measuring the negative belief that, that has become associated with it. And then they basically chew that up and are willing to just let whatever happens happen in their mind. They don't try to hold it in their mind. They don't try to do anything in particular. But it's almost like being on a train and just kind of watching the scenery go by or watching a movie. They follow with their eyes. They follow the the eye movements while their head is still. And they just let whatever happens, happens. And they look, when from the therapist's point of view, it looks like they're watching this really intense movie because their brain is playing all of the different connections around that. And sometimes they release old feelings or upset or things. They may cry or they may feel some things for 30 seconds or something. But the therapist will stop every few minutes and check in just to make sure that the information is moving. But the person doesn't have to tell everything that's going through their minds. They don't even have to tell most of what is going on, and it still works. You know, it seems like just a very safe place for them to go mm-hmm. um, revisit that pain. Um, you know, and you mentioned yeah. tapping. Is tapping always a part of it? Because, you know, we've, we've tried tapping. Um, um, I took my daughter, and it really was incredible. I mean, we didn't stick with it um, just because of the distance to have it done. But um, is tapping mm-hmm. always a part of the MDR? Tapping can be. I um, I actually, when I, when I do EMDR I use a light bar. It's sort of like an LED. They have them in the, like, they're not quite as, um, I find the ones that were in the back of cabs kind of annoying (laughs) back in New York. But um, this is like a light bar that just has a straight line of light that your eyes can follow because what they found Mm -hmm. was that um, people started developing shoulder issues when they were doing a lot of these arm motions with a lot of people all day. And when they manufactured these light bars specifically for EMDR, they while they were at it, they included the other sensory information. So there's a headphone thing that does alternating tones, and there are these little vibrating eggs that alternate on, on those sides. Um, and some people like to use all of them, or there's one in particular. If, if someone is, for example, visually impaired, the sound and, and tactile ones will work and will alternately stimulate the body. But most people prefer to have the eye movements, and just the eye movements alone will work. But but there's some sense that incorporating other sensory realms deepens it and uh, causes it to work faster. I mean, it, it really is an incredible thing. Uh, you know, I know that there are some places um, that offer... Um, it's almost like a residential. I mean, I shouldn't call it residential because you don't actually sleep there, but you'll go to a certain state or location where they specialize in this, and I know they have these for children. Um, I don't know much about them. Have you heard of places like this? How would a parent find for themselves or for their child somebody that's really qualified in doing this? Because there are places where you go, you stay at a hotel, and you know you bring your child there or you go there every day for maybe three or four days or whatever the case may be. Yes. Yes, and and I some of them are day treatment programs or or programs where you'll go for a short period of time. Because the the thing about EMDR is that 
it, it works very rapidly. It's not something that takes years. So you actually right. can, can see a really big difference kind of rapidly. But the quality control issue you're asking about, um, I think it's very important to know about EMDRIA, which is the EMDR um, Institute. And they are sort of the quality control people. They do the trainings and set the levels of training for uh, EMDRIA trained and certified therapists. And so by going through, the and actually their website is, is a wonderful place to start. It's EMDRIA. Um, is it .com or .org? I should find that out. Um, but they are, if you even Google EMDRIA, you, you can easily find their website. But they have a list of therapists all over the world who have varying levels of certification and training. And um, Bessel van der Kolk is, uh, um, you know, one of, one of the uh, sort of icons of uh, trauma treatment and therapy. And um, the, he was the head of the Institute of Traumatic Stress for a long time. And he's actually involved with one of these residential places that um, you're referring to. I can, uh, if listeners are interested in getting more specific information about that, I could get that to you to provide for them. If, uh, if that was great. Want. And your website also has um, some great resources on um, EMDR also. Thank um, you. You know, the parents... Um, a lot of parents are really, you know, when we talking, we're talking about being stuck on traumatic events or, you know, whatever the case may be if you're wired that way. But, you know, a lot of parents, um, you know, whether it's post-traumatic, um, you know, from, from raising a special needs child or um, whatever the case may be, they're really stuck in negativity and despair. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think we've all been there. It's horrible. It's hard to, you know, I call it dig out of the trenches. Um, what what is what can they do? You know, is, is there anything they can do to pull themselves out of it? Um, is is there a certain type of therapy they can use? Because you know, parents are suffering; they really are, and it's very hard to be productive and help your child when you're in just as much emotional pain. I agree, and and I I think this is. Um, you know, when you I'm going to tie this together with something. When you were asking, does there need to be an event? My mind, when you asked that question, went to your wonderful Welcome to Holland article on your website. Because I think for many parents, the event is the diagnosis or the, uh, whether it's an experience at um you know, at birth or or later on developmentally, of getting the news and having the dawning realization that this is going to be a different journey. And initially, it represents the um, the death of this fantasy of what right. um, life was going to be, and the trip to Italy, as you as your the that article put it. And uh, that this is going to be something else. And later you can sort of evolve to a place where you recognize that there are lots of really wonderful things about this journey, but it's not the journey that you signed up for. And I think for many parents, the trauma is having their world turned upside down, having everything that they thought 
or everything that they had imagined or rehearsed in their minds suddenly kind of pulled out from under them and there's this whole other thing to learn. And very often the negative belief that goes with that for those parents, the traumatic belief is, it's my fault. And whether it's conscious or not, it's my fault. I I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that or maybe if only, and, and it's not. But this is this is this I think the um very frequently um uh one of one of the main negative self beliefs that, that causes a lot of the torment for many parents. And I do believe that um a very, very short course of EMDR to really target those things and target the um the worst moments of learning what needed to happen or seeing their child in a situation where they couldn't protect them and um, something was going on socially that was difficult or watching them struggle or procedures that needed to happen. To be able to have the parent target those as their own traumatic event because they're the only one who's the parent of the one going through it and they can't go through it for their child. And there are things only their child can go through, and there's tremendous helplessness that can go on. So to be able to reprocess those with EMDR, I think that's probably one of the most rapid and powerful ways to help the parent be able to more quickly restore their own self-soothing and their own constructive um, way of thinking. And, And so they can be more patient and they can be more regulated and they can manage stress better so that they're in a much better position to step up every day and make it count. You know, and I think, you know, it also parents need to forgive themselves for the mistakes because, I mean, we make so many mistakes. I mean, at normal parenting, you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just like sure. when, you, you know, you, when you have a child, they don't give you the book when you leave the hospital. And when you have a special needs child, exactly. there is no book to give you. <laughs> you know, it's just mm-hmm. that simple. There are millions of them written, but there is no book. Um, you know, and I think it's just, you know, so many parents just have such a hard time um getting past it. They're so overwhelmed. And I mean, I I speak to parents every day and you know, sometimes I think about the struggles that they're going through and um, how difficult their lives are for their children and you know, I don't know how they get through a day. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm glad there are people out there like you that are doing EMDR and other therapies. I just wish that, you know, you talk about um, finding the meaning of the symptoms to get unstuck. Is there a way that they can self-help themselves and find the meanings of the negativity that they're feeling? There there are lots of ways that we can help ourselves. I think that, that the... Finding the meaning in the symptoms, you, I think you're getting that from my website, probably. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and that is not a, not specifically an EMDR reference. It's that that has to do with um, with more of the depth work that that people do. Mm-hmm. So very often, the EMDR processing the trauma can allow a person who may have some deeper kinds of issues. That, that have been a problem th- throughout their lives, they may have felt like they needed to avoid really going there and looking at it. It was intolerable. It was too painful or scary. And sometimes the, the EMDR can allow them to be comfortable enough that they can be more emotionally courageous in, in looking at these other things. But the meanings of symptoms, knowing 
what they mean or knowing the you know why I am this way or why I do this is is really not sufficient. It it's I think helpful, but if we want to get something different, we need to be able to do something different. And the the why of it is is an important piece, but the getting unstuck and getting out of the loop of um you know causing that to be the justification for well I just keep doing this because this happened or this is who I am and to be able to forge some new pathways in terms of choices right that's what really gets people into a, a better situation and and bringing this back into the brain imaging things that we know now we have uh, uh we have examples of of how the neural pathways and the constellations that our brains use a lot, um, our brains devote more bandwidth. So you have these sort of super highways of things that we're in the habit of doing all the time and these little kind of trails of things that we're not in the habit of doing. So those can be great, like expertise in something or playing the piano really well, or those can be bad habits that we have, that we have a lot of neurons devoted to. And so when people make changes... I think this is really important to know that we're not just making changes in terms of uh, how we feel or or with the choice of our behavior, but there is a corresponding change that happens in our brain if we keep making that new choice over and over again and develop new habits. So parents can do a lot of things on their own. I know that there are... Parents of special needs children in particular are wonderful at being advocates for their kids and learning and researching what their kids need. I think what's challenging very often is what about me? What about exactly taking care of myself? And uh, that, again, is challenging for any parent, but especially this. So I think that um, if you get really great professional tools for your child to help them, to uh, invite the parents to think that aren't you equally worthy and aren't you equally deserving of getting the best tools you can for yourself? And you know, we talk all the time about um, you know we we make I make the analogy um, to the you know to the stewardess that tells you to put your oxygen mask on first, and that goes mm-hmm. for your own you know your own sanity, your own psychological health. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, therapy is your oxygen mask for a lot of parents, and there's no shame in saying. I need help coping with my life in this situation. And, you know, I agree with you 100%. You know, I'm a, I'm a really strong believer in free will. Um, you know, I, I think there are some things that are, you know, there could be some fate. Um, but basically there's free will to make changes. And, you know, I'd really hope that parents um, start thinking that way and start thinking they have control over their negativity and their, you know, their emotions. It's tough, but... The way you look at it is really going to change a lot. So, you know, I'm really glad you came on. I'm really glad that, you know, you, you're finally someone explained to us EMDR because, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, what is the um, research showing? I mean, how effective is EMDR? It's, it's extraordinary. It is, uh, EMDR is now um, recommended as Category A strongly recommended by the Veterans Administration and Homeland Security for treating combat trauma and and wow. that. Um mm-hmm. it, it is one of it is probably the most researched and um most highly effective 
technique for treating post-traumatic stress. There are um, a number of studies in multiple countries looking at different age groups, looking at different types of traumas. And um, there are actually on uh, Embrya's website, there is an area that has compiled um, the the research. And anyone who's interested in, in looking at that, they have the specific research studies and the outcomes and all of that. Um, one of the things that I found in my own practice that's been very interesting has been that when you get, you know, when you use this technique to target the node, kind of the central node of, of uh, the trauma, and that starts to move, the reprocessing continues after someone leaves your office. And it tends to generalize to other things that were upsetting that no longer are. It doesn't change actual threats. Like if you're in a real dangerous situation now, it's not going to cause you not to be upset about that. But there are ways in which, for example, um, we reprocess some trauma on someone I was working with. That person had a phobia that they hadn't talked to me about, but they had a phobia because of something that was present during the trauma as a child. And when we reprocessed the trauma and that distress went away, that person went on vacation and the spouse said, oh, look at that, you used to be afraid of this and you're not anymore. That's amazing, right. What you know, right. what's going on. And the person came back in and said, I don't have this phobia anymore, this is incredible. And actually said, I have this other thing I'm afraid of too, can we do EMDR on that? And then that phobia went away. So, is this covered I mean, at all by insurance? It is covered by insurance. Um, it is considered an evidence-based therapy, which is wow, that's great. Are, are really liking. There, I think Andrea is working with some managed care companies to get them to be covering it because some of them haven't been as quick to cover them. And there are people, as I said, who have um, that. First impression I had almost 20 years ago of, oh, sure, you know, this is too good to be true, um, before the data actually really backed it up. And so people don't really know too much about it. But what, the more people look into the actual current research and what people who are really respected in the area of, of trauma and helping people with trauma, it's astonishing. It is really astonishing. That's what I've heard. I really, you know, that's what I've heard, you know, especially for the the parents that have told me about this for their children, which is why I was was so glad that you came on. Um, I'm really, you know, so grateful because I think it's just another tool that parents are not utilizing that could really change their lives and their children's lives. So um, if you want to go and check out um, everything that Dr. Uh, Arrett does, you can go to um, www.drcherylarrett.com. She has a fantastic website um, that has a lot of information on EMDR and about everything else that she does because you do a lot of other work, too, um, that we didn't go to in vitro fertilization counseling and couples counseling. So, again, I really want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for inviting me on. I, I really appreciate it, too. It was great to speak with you. Well, terrific. So, um, EMDR, check it out. And it is um, emdria.org is the website that you were talking about before if parents are going to be looking for a um, reference for their child, a recommendation for their child. So, again, thank you for joining yes. us. 
Um, I am so excited. We are launching our new network on a week from ooh, yesterday, um, next Tuesday, September 6th. And um, Dr. Lynn Kenny and I are going to be kicking off the network with Talking Parenting at 9 o'clock at night. I hope you join us. We have six amazing shows. And you can go to specialneedstalkradio.com and find out all about what we have in store for you. So as we end the show each night, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on The Coffee Clutch. <laughs>